people under... This is a transcribed series of full-hour programs based on documented evidence and expert knowledge about the power and intentions of the Soviet Union. This series is presented by the National Association of Educational Broadcasters in consultation with scholars from the Russian Research Center at Harvard University, the Russian Institute of Columbia University, and the Hoover Institute and Library at Stanford University. The program you're about to hear, Terra as a system of power is based on materials and counsel provided by Dr. Merle Feinsar, professor of government at Harvard. Dr. Merle Feinsard is not only the author of books on American government, but is also well known for his writings about the government of the Soviet Union. He has traveled in Russia, interviewed many escapees from the Soviet Union, and is director of political studies at Harvard's Russian Research Center. Here is Dr. Feinsard to introduce our program, Terror as a System of Power. The other day, I told a friend of mine that we were planning a radio program on the Soviet secret police. He looked at me skeptically and asked, Will people listen? I came back with another question. Why won't they listen? Oh, he said, we have heard so many stories of concentration camp brutalities that our interest has become dulled and our capacity for indignation exhausted. Terror has become commonplace. Terror has become commonplace. A third of the world's population lives in its shadow. If the men in the Kremlin have their way, there will be many others. If we are to prevent that from happening, we need to know how the Soviet secret police operates, how it developed, and where it appears to be going. This program tells that story in the authentic language of the historical record without embroidery, and without sensationalism. The practitioners of terror speak in their own words. The voices of the victims which you will hear come from official documents and the reports of living witnesses. And now, terror as a system of power. <laughs> Stakov. Here. Belov. Here. Vasilev. Here. Dischenko. These people are prisoners. In the dark, before dawn, they're being checked off in work brigades. Soon they will be led away under guard to their place of work. A forest, perhaps, where they will fell trees, or a gold or coal mine. They will work until after sunset. Then they will be marched back to their camp, carefully watched by men and dogs, to be served a meal, the size of which will be strictly determined by the amount of work they accomplished during the day. The food will be inadequate and poor, but they will devour it nonetheless. Afterwards, exhausted, they will disperse to their wooden barracks, find their places in its tiers of bunks, and often, without undressing, drop upon them to sleep and to be free for a few hours. Yevdokimov. Sick. Zaitsev. Refuses. So? Where is he? 
barrack number six. Oh. How many of these people there may be, we do not know accurately. The Soviet government does not give that information. There may be as many as seven or eight million, or as few as three and a half million. The secret Soviet plan for 1941, which the Germans captured and which fell into American hands at the end of the war, discloses that the NKVD's forced labor program accounted for 12% of the capital investment budget, 6.8 billion rubles out of a total of 57 billion rubles. A careful analysis of this highly revealing document indicates a minimum of 3,500,000 concentration camp inmates. In their book, Forced Labor in Soviet Russia, Dalin and Nikolaevsky list well over a hundred identifiable places where prisoners are confined, but point out that the list is far from complete. Huge camp clusters like Dalstroy in far eastern Siberia number their inmates in the hundreds of thousands. The camp sites dot the map of European Russia and Siberia. Many of them lie above the Arctic Circle. Indeed, the industrial exploitation of the vast frigid zone region of the Soviet Union might well have proved impossible without the use of prison camp labor. Zaitsev. Here, Citizen Commandant. Refuser, huh? Look at my feet, Citizen Commandant. I asked you a question. There are just rags on my feet. It's 40 below zero outside. I can't work with nothing to cover my feet except these rags, Citizen Commandant. What was the name of the one that you reported sick? Yevdekimov, Citizen Commandant. He's from this barrack, isn't he? Yes, Citizen Commandant. Take your shoes and give them to this shaker here. What's your work norm, Zaitsev? Second category, Citizen Commandant. 500 grams bread ration, eh? Put Zaitsev on the punishment ration. 300 grams, Citizen Commandant. And if I hear any more about refusing Zaitsev, off you go to the isolator. You deserve to go there now. Citizen... Shut up. Put on Yavdekimov's shoes and join your brigade. I'll make a decent Soviet citizen out of you yet if I have to kill you to do it. Carry on. Yes, Citizen Commandant. Come on. Let's get Yvdekimov's shoes. You got off pretty easy, comrade. Believe me. Maybe if I just froze to death, I'd get off easier. The largest category of labor camp prisoners is that of the political offenders. The ordinary criminal constitutes a second category of labor camp prisoners. This one, by all accounts, enjoys much more favorable treatment from camp administrators than do the political prisoners. The camps are under the control of the Ministry of Internal Affairs the MVD. At the end of the war, the old Commissariat of Internal Affairs, the NKVD, was finally divided into two ministries, the MVD, already mentioned, and the Ministry of State Security, the MGB. To this last ministry, the MGB have been given all those functions of the old NKVD, which together make up the huge secret police and terror apparatus of the Soviet government. We have no authoritative current information concerning the structure of the MGB, but there is a great deal available in the reports of escapees about that of its predecessor, the NKVD. One of its sections administered the great network of prison camps already mentioned. Another section was charged with the duty of guarding the Soviet borders. Still another, a fully organized military force of a half million picked soldiers, was responsible for the internal security of the state, its protection against disorder and uprisings. There were many other sections. For instance... 
General of Division, Nikwalski speaking. Investigator Baranov, special section of the NKVD here. Will you be good enough, General, to see me at the special section office this evening at 11 o'clock? Very well, comrade investigator. The special section concerned itself with the loyalty of the armed forces. Another section, the Economic Administration, dealt with wrecking, production failures, sabotage, and in general with what is called counter-revolutionary activity in Soviet industry and agriculture. The foreman, comrade investigator, seems unable to explain why the boring machines are not giving results within the tolerance limits required. His name? Ladin Pyotr Alexandrovich. Where does he live? A secret political administration protected the regime against the possible effects of impermissible political activity within or without the Communist Party ranks. I feel it my duty, comrade investigator, to lay before you my doubts concerning comrade Karyabin's reliability. Yes? At our last unit meeting, during the discussion of the need for constant vigilance against the Bukhayanite Trotskyite bloc of wreckers and spies, comrade Karyabin stated that some of those already arrested and punished may not be guilty of counter-revolutionary activity. Now, when you compare that remark with what he said in his address of the Komsomol Committee... Church and religious sects, national minorities, and members of the intelligentsia were all objects of the secret political administration's interest. Another section, the Counterintelligence Administration, sought out foreign agents within the country and carefully checked on foreign visitors and embassies. The Foreign Administration was principally an espionage organization operating outside the Soviet Union... One of its duties was to keep an eye on Soviet personnel stationed in foreign countries. As the Canadian spy investigation in 1946 revealed, it also recruited agents from among communists, communist sympathizers, and others who passed along information of interest to the Soviet government. Arise, ye prisoners of starvation. Arise, ye wretched of the earth, for justice thunders condemnation, a better world's in birth. Why did that song, and the aspirations it stood for, lead to the development of this great organization of espionage, terror, and enslavement? More specifically, why did that great dream of the Russian people, which seemed in the spring months of 1917, even among the horrors and suffering of war, so close to realization, why did that dream lead not to liberty, but to this? Aksakov. Here. Bilov. Here. Vasilyev. Here. A prophetic observation of Leon Trotsky's made in 1904 is worth considering as we attempt to answer these questions. In Lenin's scheme, the party takes the place of the working class. The party organization displaces the party. The central committee displaces the party organization. And finally, the dictator displaces the central committee. An often quoted remark attributed to Mikhail Tomsky a leading Bolshevik who was later to commit suicide during the Great Purge of 1936-38, to 38, supports Trotsky's analysis of Lenin's philosophy of politics. Certainly two, three or four parties may exist under the conditions of working-class dictatorship, but only provided that one party is in power and all of the rest in prison. While it would not be true to say that all Bolsheviks subscribe to Tomsky's view of the party's role, 
It is true that such a conception exerted a determining effect upon its attitude when it seized power in November 1917. It was a view, moreover, which gained added force and prestige from the support it received from Lenin himself. Only a few days after the seizure of power, for example, Lozovsky, a party member, protested vigorously against what he saw happening. I deem it my duty to make the following statement. I cannot, in the name of party discipline, be silent when I feel with all my soul that the tactics of the Central Committee are leading to the isolation of the advance guard of the proletariat, to civil war within the working class, and to the defeat of the Great Revolution. I cannot, in the name of party discipline, be silent when I see what is being done with the press, when I see before me houndings and persecutions, searches and arrests, all of which arouse the masses and lead them to think that the dictatorship of the proletariat which the socialists have preached for decades, is the same old regime of the club and the saber. The course of future developments within the Bolshevik party is implicit in Lenin's stinging answer to Comrade Lozovsky's criticism of the party's tactics. The Central Committee has already presented an ultimatum to the leading advocates of your policy, requiring them to submit unconditionally to the decisions of the Central Committee and its program, and to refrain from subversive activity of any kind. And two months later, Lazovsky was expelled. The party takes the place of the working class. The party organization displaces the party. The Central Committee displaces the party organization. And in time, the dictator was to displace the Central Committee. During those first days of the Bolshevik Revolution, the party's membership did not exceed 200,000. In spite of the fact that it had the support of many industrial workers of Petrograd and Moscow of some of the army contingents stationed in and around Petrograd and of the bulk of the sailors at the nearby Kronstadt naval base, the party represented only a small percentage of the population of Russia. Regardless of its minority status, however, it refused to share power with any political group which would not accept completely the party program. When, in January 1918, the long-awaited Constituent Assembly met in Petrograd to create a constitutional government for the country, it was dissolved by a show of force for the obvious reason that the Bolshevik party would have been easily outvoted by the preponderant non-Bolshevik parties. A member of one of those parties put the matter in these words. On our side were legality, great ideals, and faith in the triumph of democracy. On their side were activity, machine guns, weapons. Against such a background of thought and action, it is hardly surprising that one of the first moves of the Soviet government, now in control of the Bolshevik party, was the organization of a secret police, the Cheka. Less than a year after the abolition of the Tsarist terror apparatus, the Akhrana, a new one was being created, and with a similar end in view, the maintenance and power of a minority group. The decree establishing the Cheka, or All-Russian Extraordinary Commission, clearly defined its duties. First, to persecute and liquidate all attempts and acts of counter-revolution and sabotage all over Russia, no matter what their origin. Second, to hand over to the Revolutionary Tribunal all counter-revolutionists and saboteurs and work out measures of struggle against them. Third, to make preliminary investigations only insofar as that may be necessary for suppression. By counter-revolutionists and saboteurs, the Council of People's Commissars was not only thinking of the disenfranchised nobility and bourgeoisie, it also had explicitly in mind members of the parties of the left 
who, refusing to accept the Bolshevik program, nonetheless persisted in carrying on political activity. It was for the Cheka to decide when this activity overstepped the limits of permissible protest. The commission is to watch the press, saboteurs, strikers, and right socialist revolutionaries. Revolutionary tribunals were also established to try those accused of such activity and to fix penalties. In accordance with the circumstances of the case and the dictates of the revolutionary conscience. One of the chiefs of the Cheka, Latsis, declared... We are no longer waging war against separate individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. Do not seek in the dossier of the accused for proofs as to whether or not he opposed the Soviet government by words or deeds. The first question that should be put is to what class he belongs, of what extraction, what education and profession. These questions should decide the fate of the accused. Herein lies the meaning and the essence of the Red Terror. But members of the former propertied classes were not the only ones to bear the brunt of the Chekat onslaught. Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries suffered as well. Besides these political victims, peasants who resisted grain requisitionings for the Red Army also felt the heavy hand of the Chekaz terror. Along with the Red Terror, there was a White Terror of equal ferocity. During this period of civil war, tens of thousands lost their lives, victims of one or the other. Indeed, the actual figure may have been in the hundreds of thousands. Yet, as the Cheka intensified its activities behind the lines of the Red Armies, warning voices were heard within the Bolshevik ranks. The question was raised, for instance, as to how the activities of the Cheka could be controlled, the widening of its jurisdiction halted. At the second All-Russian Conference of Commissars of Justice at Moscow in July 1918, a comrade Lebedev raised the crucial question. I admit, comrades, the necessity for the existence of these extraordinary commissions. But I wish to point out that it is important to delimit their sphere of activity. Otherwise, we shall have a state within a state. Comrade Terastvatsatorov has shown us how acute this question is in the provinces. To say, as he reports the president of the Ariol Cheka as having said, I am responsible to no one... My powers are such that I can shoot anybody. Demonstrates how easily an organ like the Cheka tends to widen its authority more and more. Comrade Lebedev was answered by the Commissar of Justice, Nikolai Kristinsky. In the light of what later happened to Commissar Kristinsky, his reply is worth remembering. So long as the Cheka functions, the work of justice must take a secondary place and its sphere of activity must be considerably curtailed. A member of the Cheka, Comrade Peters, was more blunt. In its activity, the Cheka is completely independent, carrying out searches, arrests, shootings, and afterwards making a report to the Council of People's Commissars and the Soviet Central Executive Committee. We were asking a little while ago, why the dream of liberty, which in February 1917 seemed so close to realization, resulted instead in the great apparatus of terror and enslavement sketched at the beginning of this program. Have we now reached a point where we can begin to see the outlines of an answer, Dr. Feinsod? We have noted, for one thing, how the idea of dictatorship was implicit in the Leninist theory of politics. And for another, how a weapon of terror, the Cheka, was forged during the period of civil war, from the time, that is, of the Bolshevik seizure of power in November 1917 
to the autumn of 1920. Dictatorship, terror. The two are, it would seem, inevitably linked together. No doubt, terror is not the only means by which a totalitarian regime maintains itself in power. Loyalty and devotion must also be elicited. But behind the facade of any dictatorship, the instrument of terror can always be found, ready for use when needed, operative above all even when not visible, by the mere fact that it is known to be there. Soon after the inauguration of the new economic policy in 1921, there was an effort made to limit legally the operations of the Cheka. The NEP period, in retrospect, appears a relatively mild one. To many who lived through it, it was the golden age of the Soviet regime. Only limited categories of citizens were objects of the political administration's special interest. But whatever the hopes that may have been entertained by the more optimistic during this period, they were to be rudely broken toward the end of 1928, when the new economic policy was discontinued and Stalin inaugurated the first five-year plan of rapid industrialization and the collectivization of agricultural holdings. The secret police apparatus was turned upon three classes in particular. The kulaks, the old intelligentsia comprising many of the country's sorely needed technicians, and the class of traders which had grown up during the period of the net. The Kulaks were liquidated as a class for any kind of opposition to collectivization. Their liquidation, at the least, involved exile. Many of the net men were also exiled. The percentage of these who were imprisoned or simply disappeared into the laboring class cannot be determined. As for the old intelligentsia, always viewed with suspicion by the Soviet government, this class became the scapegoat for the failures and breakdowns of the industrialization program. In a series of show trials arranged by the secret police, industrial failures were identified with sabotage undertaken at the behest of the foreign capitalist enemies of the Soviet state. These trials, however, by no means represented the full extent of the attack of the secret police upon the intelligentsia. Thousands were exiled, sometimes for no more reason than that they were classified as engineers. Then, after this decimation of the ranks of the country's technical leaders had resulted in an inevitable slowing down of the industrial process, a halt was called. In June 1931, Stalin spoke. It would be wrong and undialectical to continue our former policy. It would be stupid and unwise to regard practically every expert and engineer of the old school as an undetected criminal and wrecker. We have always regarded and still regard expert baiting as a harmful and disgraceful phenomenon. As a consequence of Stalin's attitude, a large number of technicians who had been tried and sentenced on presumably substantial evidence as traitors and saboteurs were now released and restored to their former positions. But with the increasing strains and tensions induced by the effort to industrialize the Soviet Union quickly, a new series of accusations, trials, and executions of technicians soon followed. The period was one during which a vast expansion took place in the OGPU, or Soviet Security Organization. The forced labor camp system mushroomed. The kulaks were liquidated. This business-like word applied to human beings has taken on the grimmest connotations. 
Applied to the Kulaks, it meant in all cases forcible ejection from their land. Those who physically resisted ran the risk of being shot, and some were. But most were turned over to the Ogpu, and so became that huge reservoir of labor which the prison camp system exploits. Indeed, so great was this huge captive labor force that some of it was even found out to other Soviet enterprises which could not obtain sufficient free labor. The Ogpu thus became an industrial empire as well as a security organization. The realities of government by dictatorship were making the outlines of the dream of freedom fainter and fainter. But the iron control over a population a dictatorship can exercise when necessary had not yet manifested itself completely. In July 1934, the Agpu became a commissariat of the Soviet government, the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs, the NKVD. By this move, all police elements and all prisons were united under a single authority. And then... This shot killed Sergei Kirov, member of the Politburo, friend of Stalin, and one of the top leaders of the ruling clique. The time was December 1934. The newly reorganized terror apparatus was to assume an added task. The assassin had been a Communist Party member. The NKVD was now to apply its methods to the party itself. to People Under Communism, a transcribed series of full-hour programs based on documented evidence and expert knowledge about the power and intentions of the Soviet Union. We continue now with Terror as a System of Power. The first victims of the new terror were, of course, the assassin Nikolaev and a group of his alleged confederates. Soon, Zinoviev and Kamenev, old Bolshevik leaders of the first rank, were also arrested. Within a week, the head of the Leningrad NKVD, along with several subordinates, followed Zinoviev and Kamenev into prison, allegedly for having known of the Nikolaev plot and having done nothing to prevent its outcome. By the spring of 1935... Thousands, possibly tens of thousands, of party and non-party people were arrested and deported to Siberia. They became known among the prison population as Kirov's assassins. As the purge gathered momentum, Stalin himself was heard from. These comrades did not always confine themselves to criticism and passive resistance. They threatened to raise a revolt in the party against the Central Committee. More, they threatened some of us with bullets. We were obliged to handle some of these comrades roughly, but that cannot be helped. In May 1935, the Society of Old Bolsheviks was dissolved. In the same month, the Party Central Committee ordered a cleansing from the party of all opposition elements. By the spring of 1936, 25% of its members had disappeared from the party rolls. What happened to them can only be guessed. The fact that the controlled press spoke of them as wreckers, spies, 
diversionists and murderers sheltering behind the party card gives a clue, at least, as to their fate. This purge was dramatized by a series of extraordinary trials which occurred during the period from 1936 to 1938. Three of these were public. One was secret. Its result alone was revealed. The trials represented the extermination of all intra-party opposition. The roll call of the accused is like a who's who of the old party leadership. The accusations in the zinoviev kamenev trial were limited to charging the defendants with Kirov's assassination and plotting to assassinate other party leaders. In the later trials, the net was cast wider. Connivance with the exiled Trotsky, foreign powers, or both was alleged. In the public trials, these charges involved assertions of the existence of what seemed to have been fantastic conspiracies and plots. Yet more astounding than these charges, even, were the public confessions. Only one man of this whole group denied his guilt. He was that same Nikolai Kristinsky, who, as we have heard, subordinated the work of the courts to that of the Cheka in 1918, when he was Commissar of Justice. In the preliminary investigation before the public trial, Kristinsky admitted the charge that he had established espionage connections with the German General von Zeigt on the instructions of Trotsky. But at the trial... Accused Bukharian, do you plead guilty to the charges brought against you? Yes, I plead guilty to the charges brought against me. Accused Rykov... Do you plead guilty to the charges brought against you? I do. Accused Yagoda, do you plead guilty to the charges brought against you? I plead guilty. Accused Kristinsky, do you plead guilty to the charges brought against you? I plead not guilty. I am not a Trotskyite. I was never a member of the block of right and Trotskyites, of whose existence I was not aware. Nor have I committed any of the crimes with which I am personally charged. In particular, I plead not guilty to the charge of having had any connections with the German intelligence service. Do you corroborate the confession you made at the preliminary investigation? Yes. At the preliminary investigation, I confessed. But I have never been a Trotskyite. I repeat the question. Do you plead guilty? And later, as the examination of the accused men was being conducted by Andrei Vyshinsky, then state prosecutor, Kristinsky tried to have put in the record a letter he wrote in 1927 dissociating himself from Trotsky. The records contain a letter dated July 11th, 1927, taken from you during the search. But there's another letter of November 27th. There is no such letter. That cannot be. Accused Rosengoltz. Did you hear this dialogue? Yes. Is Krzyzynski a Trotskyite? He is a Trotskyite. Accused Krzyzynski. I ask you to listen, because you'll be saying that you do not hear. I don't feel well. And still later on the same day... Kristinsky told me about the people in the Commissariat of Foreign Affairs who helped him in his work, and among them he mentioned Bisanov. Accused Kristinsky, did you hear this testimony? I deny it. Absolutely? Absolutely. I have no further questions. But on the following day, when once again Bisinsky turned to the questioning of Kristinsky, a surprising change had taken place in the prisoner with regard to his relations with Trotsky and his guilt. Accused Krzyzynski, you have heard the detailed explanation Rakovsky has given of your so-called departure from Trotskyism. Do you consider Rakovsky's explanation correct? What he says is right. If what Rakovsky said is true, will you continue to deceive the court and to deny that the testimony you gave in the preliminary investigation was true? 
I fully confirmed the testimony I gave in the preliminary investigation. What, then, is the meaning of the statement you made yesterday, which cannot be regarded otherwise than as a piece of Trotskyite provocation in court? Yesterday, under the influence of a momentary feeling of false shame, evoked by the atmosphere of the dock and the painful impression created by the public reading of the indictment, which was aggravated by my poor health, I could not bring myself to tell the truth. I could not bring myself to say that I was guilty. In the face of world public opinion, I had not the strength to admit the truth that I had been conducting a Trotskyite struggle all along. I request the court to register my statement that I fully and completely admit that I am guilty of all the gravest charges brought against me personally. What explanation can be given of this double reversal of testimony? Was Kristinsky tortured overnight by the examiners of the NKVD? We do not know. Whatever the reason, and whatever the reasons for the confessions of the others, true, false, in whole or in part, one fact these trials did demonstrate. Stalin could move ruthlessly to stamp out any possibility of challenge to his own power coming from within the party. During this period, the terror was sweeping over the whole country on an unprecedented scale. You will recall that one of the accused in the second show trial was Henry Yagoda, himself once head of the NKVD. When Yagoda fell, possibly because of Stalin's fear of his control of the NKVD apparatus, he was replaced by Nikolai Yezhov in September 1936. And it was under Yezhov's direction that the terror reached its peak. Arrests ran into the hundreds of thousands. Squads of examiners concentrated on a single prisoner with only one object in view to extract a confession, true or false, fantastic or plausible, but in any case, a confession. Leading communists, some of them fanatical supporters of Stalin, ironically enough, were caught up in this indiscriminate purge. The leadership of the Red Army was decimated. Bureaucrats from every department of the Soviet government, diplomats, trade union officials, Komsomol leaders, trust directors, along with writers and scientists, banished behind the walls of the NKVD prisons and were followed by their friends, colleagues, and subordinates. A mere denunciation was frequently sufficient to start the process that ended in a prison camp, or, often enough, the execution cellar. This, the Great Purge, represents terror gone berserk, indiscriminate, but in its special way, grimly efficient. It has come to be called the Yezhovshchina, in 1938, as the Yezhovshchina shot out of control, the dictatorship became alarmed. By party resolution and newspaper articles, it sought to dissociate itself from responsibility for what was taking place. Party careerists were blamed for injustices. And then, the last extraordinary twist of the terror was applied. The purgers themselves were purged. The prisons now began to fill up with NKVD examiners who the year before had been busy extracting confessions. It was now their turn to confess. Some prisoners had the dubious satisfaction of meeting their own torturers in their cells. The purge of the purges did not spare Yezhov. Removed as head of the NKVD in July 1938, he disappeared soon after. We do not know his ultimate fate. In 1939, Andrei Zhdanov, Politburo member, publicly made what verbal amends the dictatorship deemed necessary. Quoting the words of his master, Stalin, he said, Some of our party leaders suffer from a lack of concern for people, for members of the party, 
for workers. As a result of this heartless attitude towards people, discontent and bitterness are artificially created among a section of the party, and the Trotskyite double-dealers artfully hook onto such embittered comrades and skillfully decoy them into the bog of Trotskyite wrecking. We must have a change in party rules, which can ensure an attentive approach and careful investigation of accusations brought against party members, which will protect their rights from all arbitrary procedures. We must abolish the resort to expulsion from the party for trifling misdemeanors. Stalin, in the words of Professor Feinsod, had once more demonstrated his remarkable instinct for stopping short and reversing course at the brink of catastrophe. And finally, the dictatorship displaces the Central Committee. Under the new head of the NKVD, Lavrenti Beria, the Great Purge was gradually brought under control. Many prisoners were released, restored to their old positions, and even promoted. With a Stalinist clique in absolute control of the government of the Soviet Union, the NKVD's attention was now directed toward possible sources of danger in the event of war. The victims of past purges who treasured thoughts of vengeance and the peoples of the regions occupied by the Red Army after the signing of the pact with Hitler. In the occupied region of Poland, hundreds of thousands were swept up into the NKVD net. When the Baltic states were taken over in 1940, the same process was repeated. The pattern of coercion and terror, which had worked so well within the Soviet Union, was applied anew with methodical regularity. And after the German invasion, uncertain elements within the Union, like the Germans of the Volga region, experienced the same treatment of arrest, interrogation, and administrative sentence to the penal camps. After the defeat of the Nazis, the millions of Soviet nationals, prisoners of war or deported laborers who found themselves in Germany, were assembled into camps and screened by means of intensive interrogations to determine the degree of their contamination by the capitalistic West. Once more, the labor camps were supplied with large, fresh contingents of victims as a result. Those who had willfully taken up arms against the Soviet state were, in most cases, summarily executed. What is it like to be a victim of the terror? Some of those who suffered either as Soviet citizens or as citizens of one of the occupied countries have lived to report their stories. One of them, Mr. Jerzy Glicksman, formerly a Polish citizen and now a citizen of the United States, has set down the details of his own experience in his book, Tell the West, published in English by the Gresham Press in 1948. Mr. Glicksman's account is remarkable for the objectivity with which he was able to report the harrowing impact of the terror upon the mind and body of a victim. Mr. Glicksman was a Warsaw lawyer in 1939 and a member of the Warsaw City Council. He holds degrees from the Sorbonne and the University of Warsaw and has taught at Roosevelt College, Chicago. Mr. Glicksman, how did you come to be arrested? My story begins in 1939. When the Germans approached Warsaw, I was not yet mobilized, but on September the 17th, when I was already in the eastern part of Poland, the Soviet army occupied half of Poland, the eastern half of Poland, the Soviet secret police comes in. And they, for the first few weeks, make use of local citizens, former communists or present communists, arm them and let them do several services for them. And so three boys with red armbands 
stopped me and arrested me. They worked under orders from the NKVD, and I was brought immediately into the office and then later into the prison of the NKVD. Mr. Glixman, was any charge made against you? For a long time, no charge was made at all. But right in the beginning, I had to pass an experience that was engraved in my memory more than any other experience. This was the Soviet obelisk. You may translate it in English as search. This is really a Soviet institution that over and over again I had to pass in all my wanderings over Soviet prisons and camps. But the first time was the most shocking because unexpected. All of a sudden, the man, a Soviet officer of the NKVD, simply without warning, shouted an order, Andres. In the beginning, I didn't understand what he meant. I looked around. There was no place to put my clothes, no place to sit down. I was standing in the middle of a room with a muddy floor, dirty. Everybody was spitting on it. And I began to undress. I kept my suit of clothes in my hands and waited. The officer became angry. What are you waiting for? Undress com completely and throw away what you have in your hands. I had no choice. With one kick of his feet, he threw it into a corner and began the search. He was searching in all details my body. Made me bend over and raise my hands or all other kinds of exercises to find out whether nothing was hidden. But not this efficiency of the search, but the way he did it. The degrading words he used, the insulting remarks and jokes were something that is difficult to forget. When he was through with me, he pushed me to the wall and told me, don't turn back. Pushed me nearer and closer to the wall. So I touched my nose to the wall and then he began searching my clothes. Then, all of a sudden, he was in a hurry. He shouted, be dressed. Now, after this long examination was over, were you released? No, then I was put into a prison cell. And then you can wait for a long, long time before one night something happens. And these are interrogations. I didn't have too many, but a score or so, and always at night. But other people were taken day and night, but mostly be night, for weeks and months on end. All of a sudden, one day, they gave back my belongings and told me, that I am free. What did you do then? I decided to try to reach Vilno. Vilno at that time belonged to Lithuania, and it was free. My wife was at this time afraid to expose the baby to the cold, so we agreed that I will make the attempt alone and then try to arrange for her to get in a safer way to me. But I was caught on the demarcation line and put back to prison. I never saw them again. They were both assassinated by the Germans. After you were arrested at the demarcation line, what happened then, Mr. Glixman? Then began my real longer prison experience. I spent many months in the Oshmiana prison and later in a shorter time in other prisons. Were you ever beaten during these interrogations? I personally was never beaten, but I witnessed many of my colleagues, inmates, 
in the prison, coming back from night interrogation, bruised and beaten up badly. Mr. Glixman, will you describe the conditions that you found when you were assigned to a cell? We were three of us brought into the cell number one in Oshmana prison. The prisoners were counting 77, 78, 79. It meant that we were the 77, 78, 79th prisoners coming to the cell. And on the door, I have seen an old Polish sign, because it was an old Polish prison, saying, cell number one, 15 men. As you think back on that experience now, what stands out in your mind as the worst features of your confinement? This overcrowding. But the most horrible that stands out in my memory was the suffocating foul air we had to live in. When the summer began, even before in, in spring, when we were already almost 90 people in the same cell, and the only windows, two windows we had in our room, were covered with planks, so no fresh air could come in, it became really a hell. And we all were breathing like as we would have asthma. This is the most horrible thing that people in Soviet prisons suffer. I spent in prisons about eight months. Then what happened? Then, one day, I was called to the warden and I learned what will be my future. He'd give me a slip of paper on which it was said that the special council in Moscow, the so-called Asobye Savishchanie, decided to imprison me for five years in a corrective labor camp for trying to cross illegally the border and as being a socially dangerous element. I asked the warden, is it a concentration camp? No, he said. Concentration camps exist only in capitalist countries, not in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union has corrective labor camps. What experiences do you recall most vividly, Mr. Glixman? We were crowded in a cattle car. We didn't undress. We didn't wash for all these three weeks on our way. We didn't get but twice any warm water or warm food. The most harrowing thing that we experienced in our way was the lack of water. A bucket of water or two at most for a whole car was the most we could get. And when the water was given to the car, the criminals first took the water to their place. And after they had as much as they could, they gave the remaining water to us, the politicals, the non-criminals. And so thirst was the most horrible thing. After these three weeks of traveling in the train, we are taken on foot to our camp. It turns out that our belonging was, were in fact the greatest asset we could have. Shoes, shirts, clothing, and all other small things were so precious in camp that we could exchange it for food. One day we were taken on a long, long walk, and thousands, tens of thousands of us were standing in rows all day long in the frost waiting. We didn't know for what purpose. And then several people several NKVD officers in fine furs with warm valenki, it means felt boots, began walking amongst us, looking at our faces, trying to figure out our health, our muscles, to pick up the labor force they needed. The problem was not to be treated and not to get any sick or invalid 
prisoners that they will have to feed even as little as they feed them. There was a kind of a slave market. Where were you finally sent, Mr. Glixman? I was sent to the ucht Izm camp. It is northeast, European Russia, not far from the Arctic on the north and near the Urals on the east. This trip lasted only for ten days and ten nights, and we could this time look out from the windows. And what we saw was a picture that remains forever in my memory. We could see only one side, barbed wire and watchtowers. Barbed wire and watchtowers. Again and again, a real kingdom of slave labor camps. Now, finally, when you arrived at your destination, what happened to you? I was assigned to the woodcutters brigade. According to the regulations, our workday was two hours longer than the normal workday of a Soviet worker. Until the outbreak of the war, our workday was supposed to be 10 hours. After the outbreak of the war, 12 hours a day. But in fact, they made us work sometimes an hour or sometimes longer in order to fulfill the assignment of the day. But if you add the hours we were walking to and from, the hours we were waiting for the morning roll call, and for the evening roll call in the cold, in the snow, you could say that we were on our feet 15, 16, and sometimes 17 hours a day. Will you tell us how you were fed, Mr. Glixman? Our food depended on our output. Each function had its quota. Each smallest function in the camp was calculated in the daily quota that they called norm, which had to be fulfilled, and if fulfilled, gives you 100%. But woe to this who cannot fulfill it. And the quota was so high that the great majority of prisoners, with their best will, could at best perform 50-60% of the quota. Were there criminals in the camp? This is one of the worst features of our camp, the professional criminals. They are in the minority in the camp, and they are the real bosses of the camp. They are privileged by the administration. They are considered the most reliable most trustworthy by the administration. They occupy all posts that the administration of the camp gives to the prisoners. Almost all posts are occupied by these hardened criminals. Even the administration was frightened a little of them, and they used to take advantage of their privileged position, and many, many sufferings are caused, not by the administration, but the criminal prisoners with whom we had to live day and night together. And now, one final question, Mr. Glixman. How did you obtain your release from the camp? I got my release before my sentence was over. The Russian political prisoners very seldom get released, even if their sentence is up. Camp authorities had no right to release a prisoner, even if his file showed that his sentence was up. And sometimes, an order for the extension of the camp term would come for another five, eight, or ten years. The purpose of relieving the Polish prisoners was to organize the, the Polish army against the Germans. But this army did not fight on the Soviet front. And so we left for Persia. Persia was the first free country we had after Russia, and then through Europe I came to the United States. 
after the war. Thank you, Mr. Glixman, for your precise account of what it means to be a victim of a terror system of political control. Through you, your millions of fellow sufferers have been able, as the title of your own book says, to tell the West. Since the end of the war, information concerning the activities of the MGB has not been plentiful. Mass deportations of the native populations from the Baltic states and other border areas of European Russia have been reported. The Soviet press has also, during this period, carried on campaigns against collective farm abuses and noted cases of corruption in the bureaucracy and in industry. It has also carried accounts of purges in the party and among intellectuals. Although there have been no indications of mass arrests on the scale of the 1937 Yezhovshina, the MGB continues to claim its victims, and forced labor has become an integral feature of the Soviet totalitarian system. At the beginning of this program, some idea of the pervasive influence of the secret police on Soviet life was briefly sketched. Dr. Merle Feinsod of Harvard University will sum up for us the significance of the use of terror as a system of power. Now... Dr. Feinsod. By the use of terror, the dictator eliminates actual or suspected rivals. But terror achieves a more indirect goal. It paralyzes within the minds of members of the governing elite itself those thoughts of rivalry and independence which might lead eventually to concrete challenges to the dictator's absolute rule. The terror also acts as a broom by sweeping out of office one group of individuals, it automatically sweeps in ambitious individuals from lower echelons. There is circulation, but no permanence. No possibility, that is, for the development of positions of power too strong for the dictator to destroy. But meanwhile, the removal of thousands of skilled individuals from the life of the country inevitably weakens it. The manipulation of terror as a system of power is a delicate art. A dictator in command of modern armaments and a secret police can transform his subjects into robots and automatons. But if he succeeds too well, he runs the risk of destroying the sources of creative initiative on which the survival of his own regime depends. This is a problem which the Soviet dictatorship cannot evade over the long run, it may well turn out to be the rock on which the Soviet system will founder. Stalin has shown an awareness of the problem. He needs terror to safeguard his monopoly of power, but he also knows that he cannot depend on terror alone. His is a system of rule in which incentives and indoctrination also have their appointed place. There is room for the carrot as well as a stick, for the positive lure of privileges and rewards as well as the negative threat of the forced labor camp. A residue of insecurity remains, which even the most skillful manipulation cannot eliminate. The dictator tries to build his security on the insecurity of his subject because he faces the constant problem of liquidating all actual or potential competitors, 
His dependence on the secret police is absolute. The secret police follows its own laws of growth. It thrives on crisis and lives by emphasizing sinister threats at home and abroad. The atmosphere of universal suspicion which it breeds envelops the ruling group itself. The dictator becomes the victim of the Frankenstein's monster which he has created. The ultimate hazard of terror as a system of power is that it ends by terrorizing the master as well as the slave. You have just heard Terror as a System of Power, one in a transcribed series of full-hour programs, People Under Communism, based on documented evidence and expert knowledge about the power and intentions of the Soviet Union. Materials for this broadcast were supplied by Dr. Merle Feinsod, professor of government at Harvard University and director of political studies at the Russian Research Center. This series as a whole was prepared in consultation...